You're listening to the Missionary Perspective Podcast with veteran missionaries Eric Johnson and Joshua Mead. We're glad you could join us. We trust this podcast will be both a blessing and a challenge as we relate topics in world evangelism from a missionary perspective. Now, here's Josh and Eric. Welcome to the Missionary Perspective Podcast. This is Josh Mead, and I'm here today with my favorite guest, interviewee in the whole world, and that is my wife, Julie. I'm very excited about this. I'm glad I finally convinced her and she relented and decided to do this podcast with me. And I'm hoping there'll be many more in the future. She's a little bit nervous, but that's okay. There's not a real audience in front of us. It's just a camera with a bunch of studio lights, but we're going to have a lot of fun. Julie, tell us a little bit about who you are. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who is Julie Mead? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Tell us about your family. Let's get to know who Julie is. So my name is Julie. I grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada, um, in a really small fishing town. It's called Sonora, and there are about 100, 200, 300 people. I don't know the exact number, actually, but a very small town, and I would say majority of them were relatives or distant relatives. So I knew everybody. I knew everywhere they lived, knew every single person in that town, and I loved that. Um, I loved being around family family and friends. And all of them were friends um, growing up in a small town. You get to know everybody in a personal way, for sure. Um, so I have two older sisters, um, Jackie and Jill. So we have almost like two different families in a sense. I have two older sisters and the next one to me is eight years older than me. And then I have a younger brother um, and he's two years younger. So my brother and I did a lot together. My two older sisters, I really did not do a lot with my oldest sister. Um, I kind of did some with her, um, but not a ton because by the time I became, I guess, old enough to really they want me around, I guess. Um, they were already off in college and then they got married. So my brother and I, we grew up together. We did pretty much everything together and we enjoyed, we lived right beside the ocean. There is nothing like living right beside the ocean. Oh, it's beautiful. Ocean. Sonora is such a gorgeous little town. And it is like... It's a small town. That's an understatement. I mean, it's you blink and you drive through it and you'll miss it. I, nobody goes to Sonora unless you go there on purpose. And she actually lives on, when you pass through Sonora, you can curve off to the left and continue on to Sonora's a dirt down. road. And then you can curve off to the right on a dead end road. And she lives right at the edge. You come over the crest of this hill and her house is, was situated on the right. And uh, it's a beautiful view of the ocean where the river meets the ocean. Just gorgeous gorgeous, relaxed area. And it is such a small little town there. But what's funny is we were there maybe uh, 10 years ago or more, and the government had put up a new street sign indicating when you come into Soros as welcome to Sonora. But then when you go off in that little right-hand curve to that dead end road to get to Julie's house, where I think there's what, 10 people that live on the road. It's it's not a very big road. They put up a sign in front of it. (laughs) If you want to go left, you're now entering Sonora South. So, <laughs> so I grew from, up in Sonora She's from Southside, South all right, which is <laughs> awesome. But it is, it, we love Sonora. Our family loves visiting every chance we get to go to Nova Scotia. If you've never been to Nova Scotia, it's worth a trip if you ever have the opportunity. So many needs in Canada, especially in Eastern Canada for the gospel. But one of the things our kids really enjoy, just the outdoor and the spaciousness and, and the laid back atmosphere.
atmosphere. In some ways, it's it's laid back. Like here is laid back, but it's it's, some, it's different. But, it's different. but we gave different. our kids, for example, the choice one year: you can either go to Disney World when we visit a supporting church in Florida. Or we'll go to Nova Scotia and visit Sonora. And uh, we that was a serious choice we gave them. And they chose? Sonora. <laughs> Julie was very <laughs> excited about that. And so you, all of your siblings, okay, you're all grown up. And uh, we'll get back to your history of growing up in Sonora and some of the Christian influences. But all of your siblings are in ministry, right? They are. So my oldest sister, Jackie, she is married to an assistant pastor. Um, they live in... St. Thomas, Ontario, Bible Baptist Church, and Mike is the assistant pastor there, very involved, heavily involved in that church. And then the sister next to me, Jill, um, she is married to an assistant pastor, her husband, Greg, and they are in um, Tilsonburg, sorry, like lost my train of thought there, Tilsonburg, Ontario, and their church is New Hope Baptist Church. And then my younger brother, he is... Um, Jerry, Jerry Burns. He is the pastor of Kitchener Baptist Church in Kitchener, Ontario. So I'm very proud and happy that all of my siblings are um, working in the ministry. I think that's an honor and yeah, it's an incredible thing. So I mean, was your dad in the ministry? Where, did you have family in the ministry? You know what? what no, my, my Let's dad, go back to that. My dad was one of those humble workers, like he would be the one that you would never see doing things. So turning the lights off in the church or just different things. He was just always there to do anything, but he always prayed for us that we would be in the ministry. Now, obviously you're, you know, it's, it's emotional when you reflect back on your father. And so for those who don't know, Julie lost her dad. He uh, passed away of leukemia when she was 17 years old. And so we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, just, it was a very, obviously a tragic moment in her life, a very impactful moment. And uh, to see how God worked through that, uh, through tragedy uh, is really a testament to the grace of God and to see how God has used Julie and her sisters, her brother, who are faithfully serving in ministry. It really is an incredible testament to the grace of God working through uh, this humble man from a small town in Nova Scotia and his influence and impact in his children's lives, uh, which is carried on today. Uh, but growing up in Sonora, Nova Scotia, really, it's like the ideal. Like if you can make a decision to grow up anywhere, who wouldn't want to grow up in a place like Sonora, Nova Scotia? Now, it, has there always been a strong Christian influence in your family? You talk about your dad being a very humble Christian servant. Uh, was was that always the case? Was Not always. Um, we did always have a church there, but it wasn't a really strong Bible-believing church. My mom and dad got saved later on in life. So my two older sisters did not grow up in a Christian home the whole time. I did. And my brother did. As long as I can remember, we were in church. Um, Pastor Jeff Friesen actually came um, to Sonora when I was a little girl. I actually remember when he came. Um, big moment in our life. All of us were very excited yeah. that to have a preacher 
it's okay. It's okay. It's emotional. She didn't expect to get this emotional for the uh, for the podcast here this soon. I knew we'd probably get a little emotional over some things. So I got to meet Jeff Reason back when uh, I first started dating you and came out to visit Nova Scotia and uh, just an, a wonderful man of God and really had a great impact on the church and ministry there. So many young people called into ministry out of this little small church and the impact that Sonora, this church in Sonora has had really across Canada and even around the world here in Senegal uh, has really been impactful and just a testament to when you are faithful to the word of God and you are faithful to ministry, God blesses and uh, you'll make a great impact in the cause of Christ for world evangelism when you stay faithful. Today, Pastor Reason, uh, and he not only married us, he ha- he has had a big influence in your life. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about, okay, you grew up, your parents got saved later, he was your pastor, and then he launched uh, Forest Glen Bible Camp. Tell us a little bit about how that impacted your life. What uh, Forest Glen Bible Camp has been a huge blessing and an influence in my life. Um, growing up, I did go to public school, so we always went to church. We were very faithful um, at going to church. Um, but there are also those influences that you, you know, entail in public school. They're there. And I always felt like every summer I was so excited about going to Forest Glen. And it was like it gave me that that burst of excitement back and, and serving the Lord and I actually didn't ever want to go. <laughs> I'd be there like you all summer. You didn't want to leave camp. Yeah, you didn't, yeah. <laughs> That's what I meant. Yeah, I didn't want to leave. Like I got there for my week of camp and then I would beg Pastor Houston to let me stay and serve in any way I could. I mean, I babysit kids. I'd help in the kitchen. Just having that influence around you all the time was huge um, and such influence. Um such an influence on my life. I surrendered my life to full-time Christian service at Forest Glen um, and basically just gave my life to him there. So many decisions I've made and every year I went to camp and I made so many big decisions to serve him and to trust him and decisions that I was making in the future. And then I ended up, I went to college um, and then every summer, because um, I was able to, I came and I worked at Forest Glen. I worked at Forest Glen, I don't know how many summers. <laughs> I know even we worked at Forest Glen. The, yeah, during our first year of deputation. Yeah, after we got married. Yeah, we worked together. So in that. definitely put a lot um, of my time and effort in Forest Glen because I know how much it has influenced me and I want to give back and to let kids have that insane influence that it had on myself. Yeah, that's excellent. We love camp ministries and we love how God can use camp ministries to impact people, to surrender for ministry. And so was it during camp that you surrendered to full-time Christian service and uh, to serve the Lord full-time? I, it was. I remember, I think I was, um, maybe it was the summer or two before my dad passed away, but there was a few of us too from that group. Um I don't even remember who the speaker was, but I remember walking forward and not to a specific ministry, really. I just surrendered my life to the Lord to do what he would have me to do. And I really had no idea in my heart. I always thought, well, I'm going to come back to Nova Scotia, go to college, come back, marry someone who wanted to be a, a pastor and work in a home church in Nova Scotia. I had, a, I have a big heart for Nova Scotia. Um, I love my province. I love my people. Um, and 
that's what I thought, but obviously the Lord had to complain in that. <laughs> yeah. So you, you know, grew up in a Christian home, you surrendered a full-time Christian ministry, whatever the Lord has from you. Um, you were one of the first ones in your church to decide to go to Faithway Baptist College of Canada, were you not? There was another college in the States that was kind of the expectation, kind of the norm <laughs> for students to go to. So already uh, you made a decision that was kind of contrary to what was expected. And I think that was the beginning of God planting seeds in your heart for making decisions uh, to pursue things that the Lord had for you that maybe weren't quite in your plans or expectations. So uh, Pastor Greg Baker, uh, he came along and presented the college. And And when he came, um, it's like the Lord told me that's where you're going. I really had no idea. I wanted to be in ministry, um, at that time, there wasn't a lot of opportunities. I mean, like there wasn't a lot of bachelor degrees or anything that I could choose from. Basically I had teaching. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I mean, I can use that. And I am using that today. I homeschool my three kids, our three kids. Um, so I do, I have used that. I mean, but it was just the Lord leading me in that direction. And that's what that was available. And I enjoyed it. I liked it. And I learned a lot in those four years of college that I was there. So you went to college, uh, took a teaching degree, just it was the one thing. Tell us a little bit about now, you know, your parents were by no means wealthy, right? They were spiritually wealthy. I mean, just blessed family. And uh, I became best friends really with your brother. Now we're going to get into our story, how we met, but we went to the same Bible college. I was good friends with her brother. I still am. Um, But we didn't go to college at the same time. So uh, there's a little bit of an age difference between us. I know I may look older, but well, we won't we won't say who's older, but that being said, she graduated from college uh, before I even came to college. So she graduated, and then the year after I came. But so you came to college and taking a teaching degree with the expectation that I'll become a pastor's wife, most likely, right? And so by the end, tell us a little bit about just kind of getting through college, because when I hear your story, when you tell me about what it took to get you through college, how, you know making money and your workload and just trying to get by. I don't even know how you did it. Like I actually, I don't know how I did either. (laughs) When I first went there, I worked at Sherbrooke village the summer before, which is like a historic village. Um, with you dress up in the older clothing and you go to the different buildings. And I worked with a lot of different people. I went basically to all the buildings, learned about those buildings. And then as visitors or tourists came, I would share with them. Um, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. I loved working, um, and doing the hands-on stuff. So you made bread in the jail. I'm not sure why, but you did, but I really enjoyed that. And using the old oven and stuff like that. And then I also did, um, I worked on a loom. So you make like wool stuff, I guess it is. Like, I think they did blankets and stuff, but I learned how to use that loom, not to like a, where I could probably just go on, jump on and do it now. But I did, as guests came in, I could do certain things and learned. And then I also even did with the wool, I learned how to make it into a string or what. So it was really neat. I did learn a lot um, while I was there. Um, but I worked there for that summer before. I also dug clams. Now, digging clams, I did that growing up. And we actually made pretty good money. I think I started when I was seven or eight years old. And if I wanted spending money, 
that's, I had to do it all summer long. Um, even sometimes not during the summer. I think there was a certain period where you could dig, you really couldn't dig in the winter because it was too cold. Um, but during the summer, I would do that. My family, all of us would go and dig clams. Um, my mom did it to get stamps. So for unemployment insurance for the winter time, and my dad would go help her to get those stamps kind of thing. They would work together. Um, anyway, good memories and had a lot of work. I think that's why I still have back issues because of doing that. Um, it's harder than it looks. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that, but it is a really hard job. But um, I was known to be pretty good. Um, my family, I oh, guess yeah. I we, learned from the best. <laughs> we came to visit really good at it. When I first visited, we went down to the clam flats when the tide was out. And I think she's like, she explained, you got this hoe that looks like a murder weapon with these three long point prongs sticking out and you have to go down and you, you just find a clam hole, which are almost, they're hard to find. I can't see them. And so you, you, you smack down your hoe a few feet, like a foot in front of it, or not even that, half a foot, six inches. And then you plop it over. And usually you're supposed to just, as the sand that you plop over, there's the clam just sitting there. You pick it up, put it in your bucket and you move on. And so I got, she said, oh, you can do over there and get started, see how many clams you can get. And so I'm, I'm plopping, I'd throw up, the, not throw up literally, but throw <laughs> up the sand, pull up the sand. And there's nothing. It's like, where are these clams at? I smacked one and opened it and I cracked it in half. I accidentally hit the clam, you know. And so while I finally, after maybe, you know, 10 minutes, finally found a clam intact, put it in the bucket and I turn around and she's got 50 clams. It's like, all right, let's go. We're done. You know, so it's uh, it's not easy work. That's for sure. No, so I did that, and then I worked at Sherbrooke Village, like I said, and then um, then I had to pay for my plane ticket. I had to pay for all the stuff that I needed. By the time I got to college, I had no money to really even put on my bill. We had to go down and put money on our bill, and it's like, I don't have really anything. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. My brother-in-law, he was ready to take me out and to go like go to his house and maybe work or something because I had nothing. But it's like, you know what? I'm going to stay. I'm just going to let the Lord lead. And he did. Like, I am amazed. I look back and I wonder, where did the money come from? So I, I think that my brother-in-law talked to Pastor Baker and um, try to figure out if there's something that I could do at the school. So I ended up working a new job. Um, they, I think they even started it for me. Well, I think they wanted to start a library, um, but I was the first one to do it. And we got, I think they got a donation or they had a bunch of books anyway that had to be marked and titled and to put on the shelves. So if you ever go to Faithway, all the books are on there. It was me who put tagged a lot of them, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, and I would do that. And then and there was a orchard. Uh, you probably remember that orchard just down the road from the college. And I worked many hours with that. Um, the man who owned it, um, he, he became a friend and he really helped me out, gave me a lot of hours. Um, I think because I worked hard, I picked up apples. It was funny because me and another um, co um, college um, student, we would be competitive. I'm right. so competitive. <laughs> 
So it helped me to work faster and to get more rotten apples into the, we got, I think a dollar for one of those big crates. I don't know how big they were, but a pretty big crate. We got a dollar a crate. I'm telling you, we would be working our butts off and trying to be competitive to see who could get the most of those crates filled. But it helped me in the end because I did pretty decent with it. We would work um, after school the days I didn't work at the library. Um, I would work until dark um, and then we would get someone to come pick us up from the college or sometimes I think we even walked home, probably not in the dark, but even maybe the um, the man, he would drop the us two girls off. Um, anyway, and then a little bit of time into that, I had a, um, a roommate who worked at a factory who made those big jumping things bouncers bounce houses bounce houses and so I started working she got me into that job and we did um we did some night shifts but we would do a 3 to 11 shift um and there was a lot of other college students that worked there and I really enjoyed it I loved working with um I had friends there that worked there and I I wasn't a really good sewer. I remember in high school when I took home back, the lady um, who did the class told me she basically sewed my animal or whatever I was making. She said, this is not for you. I'm just telling you kindly. I don't think you should go into this area. Sewing is not your thing. Yeah. So and that being said, fortunately... <laughs> Just outside our house here where we live in Senegal, you just go out and one door down and there's a man that lives there and he has a sewing boutique just outside of his garage where anything we need sewed, we can <laughs> yeah, go over to that. It so worked it, it worked out nicely. The Lord put us in a spot where we got somebody it to did. take care of us when we have sewing needs. So. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't do sewing. Um, I just couldn't get the hang of it. It was hard and it just wasn't my thing. So I did barking. So I think that's why too, I have really bad knees. <laughs> because- <laughs> You're not. <laughs> that bad of shape. I mean, come on. So um, we would spend hours and hours um, on our knees and marking these huge bouncers, putting a pattern on it so that the people who sewed could sew them together. So, but it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs and it paid my way through college. Um, and then it ended up, I think it was my last year. I had a crazy last year of college, um, but the Lord worked it out. He had a plan for it, but it was very overwhelming for me because I was working at the orchard. Um, I also worked at the library and then there was another college student who was working in the kitchen, but she ended up having some heart issues. So they had to take her out. And for some reason, not that I didn't have enough work to do, um, Pastor Holman told me that he needed me in the kitchen. So I added kitchen and then I had factory too. So I would, and then on top of all of that, I was student teaching. So I had to prepare all my lessons um, and get everything ready. Uh, And I ended up probably breaking the law of breaking the rules a little bit. But when I get home, because I would be in classes all day um, until like I went to work at the factory. Um, I come home at 11, then I would have to go into the kitchen and help her finish up everything, get breakfast ready in the morning because then I had to get up at six to be done for breakfast. But then I had no time to get my schooling done. And I feel like because I worked so much, I really couldn't put my heart and all of my um, everything into it. So I feel like my schooling really didn't get what it should have been because when you're a um, student teaching, you have to prepare for everything. You have to have visuals. You had to have 
so much stuff ready and prepared. And I would have to do that when I came home from after I did the kitchen, I would stay up with a little light on my bed and trying to figure out what I'm doing tomorrow to school to teach because I was in school from nine to three, um, home, like, like student teaching. But I felt like I just, and I did not do very well in some classes. Some I did okay. But I mean, if I could go back, I guess I probably, I don't know. It's really hard to know because when I finished um, college, I had everything paid for. The Lord provided yeah. everything. I came out debt free, but I don't know how much I really learned. <laughs> I probably could have learned a little bit more. I yeah, college college is an interesting experience. You know, everybody experiences a little bit differently, but, you know, some students got way more of a busy schedule than others. And uh, Julie is the type of person that she just, she doesn't wing it. Like she can't just throw something together last minute and present it. <laughs> if she's going to speak at a ladies meeting, if she's asked to give her testimony, uh, there's like a week of preparation that goes into it. Everything has to be written out. And, uh, and so just, I, I didn't know her during college, but I can only imagine just how busy I would have been. And probably if we would have been in college at the same time, my schedule was a little bit different. Uh, I had a lot more free time because I was American going to college in Canada and I wasn't allowed to work off campus. And so I had to wait till everybody went to bed to do my job, which was cleaning uh, the gym and the kitchen and some all of those areas. And so I had to wait till it was lights out when everybody went into bed and then I'd go out and do my work. So I, I had a lot of free time, but uh, that being said, um, the Lord provided for me, you know, took care of my college bill and everything. And, um, but man, you, you probably would have been so busy. We wouldn't even have uh, crossed paths during busy, college. Like Saturdays, basically we spent doing visuals and getting ready for, um, my classes on Monday to Friday. And then Sunday, I was on bus. I was very involved in a lot of ministries there. So um, and then we did calling and stuff, I think a lot of Sunday afternoon. So it was very busy, crazy time. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of free time to do pretty much anything, but it made the year go by really fast. Oh, sure. And you got through it. I and did. uh now here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna break this up into a, two, a couple part series because I want to get Julie back on more of these podcasts. And so the next episode, uh, I'll give a little bit of a teaser trailer and uh, what's gonna talk about in the next episode. When you graduated, you started dating a young man uh, that you assumed he wanted to. He had said he wanted to become a uh, pastor, possibly in Nova Scotia, most likely. And so that relationship began. You moved off to Newfoundland to teach there. So she's going to talk a little bit about that, and then we're going to share a little bit about how the Lord put us together. Of course, we didn't know each other during college because I was still in high school. Okay, and uh, <laughs> it's if you keep going back. She was in college. I was in high school. You were in high school and I would have been in elementary. Or, okay. okay, well, we, we won't go back that far. But the, anyways, the point is uh, that uh, God put us together in an amazing way. And I'll just give this as kind of a teaser. I knew I was going to marry Julie before I even met her in person and had spoken or got to know her. So we're going to share about that. Julie was clueless until the Lord kind of revealed, <laughs> showed us that uh, he wanted us to be together. So we're going to share how God put us together, despite the fact that we hadn't met and how the Lord put it on my heart. And then we're going to talk about how you went from never in your lifetime, really thinking about going to Africa, you know, missions, let alone Africa and how God opened your heart and led you to come here. We're going to talk a little bit about 
when some people in your life found out you were going to Africa, they were uh, very uh, opposed to it. Uh, Julie's had to go through a lot of challenges in her life and, uh, with, you know, either people kind of saying you can't do it. And one thing about Julie being competitive, if you say you can't do something to Julie, she's going to do it. Okay. And, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. There were people in her life that said, you can't be a missionary. You're not going to make it. And, uh, just the Lord used those things. And sometimes in our lives, you know, God will put people into our lives, whether it's well-meaning or not. Sometimes they're well-intentioned, right? People can be well-intentioned and just ha give the wrong advice or have a wrong opinion, but God can take those things. We can either become bitter about it or we can get better about it. And I wanted to finish this. So the next episode, we're going to talk a little more details about how God put us together and led us here to Senegal. But I want just to end it because I know it might get a little emotional. I want to talk about the impact of your father passing away. How did that, for so many people, losing a loved one like that suddenly, unexpectedly, can cause bitterness? How did you not become bitter and how did God use that to shape you in your life to push you to continue to serve the Lord despite that tragedy? So when I was 17, my dad um, passed away. He was sick for about a week before he passed. And we really didn't see anything. Like we had no, um, I'm just trying to think of like the word, like we had no, um, can't even think indication. straight. Indication or like... Signs, that's what I was looking for. Okay, I'm going to start over there. Um, so when I was 17, my dad passed away um, very suddenly. Um, we had no signs of any sickness. Uh, I had no idea. He was very normal up until that point, until it was like a Monday before, um, before he died. He didn't go to work. He, it was almost like a flu. Like he um, had a fever, just not feeling well at all. Um, I believe he had like a cold, something like that, and um, just really sick. But then as the week went on, Tuesday, he didn't go to work. Um, actually, I think the whole week he didn't end up going to work. He was feeling better on Wednesday, and we thought, okay, so he's getting over it. And then Thursday, it was really bad. I remember my aunt coming and um, checking some of his pressure, um, like his blood pressure and some his fever and all of that stuff, and just wasn't getting better. He went to the hospital in Sherbrooke a couple times, and they the doctor said that it was his allergies. He was spitting up blood or something like that. And they were just blaming it on allergies. Um, not really thinking it was anything serious. Um, Friday night, he was really, really sick. And I knew in my heart that this is not right. There's something not right here. He was up pretty much the whole night. And I stayed up with him the whole night. At this time, it was just my mom and my brother and, and myself. My two older sisters were already married living in Ontario. So they weren't around. And um, my mom just didn't think anything of it. Um, just We just thought she was sick. Like... When it comes to, if, like, comes to you, like in a situation like that, you just don't think it's going to be you. You just don't think, like we've had flus before where they've lasted a while and we've got really sick and then, you know, you just turn around and you get better. And we, mom did take him to the doctor and they said it was nothing serious. Don't worry about it. So mom wasn't really, really worrying about it. Friday night though, um, I, 
I just had this feeling. I, I didn't say anything to mom. I'm young. Like, I don't really know anything. I just knew in my heart, this does not seem right. Um, he's just really, really sick. He was super dehydrated. He wasn't really even drinking um, a lot of um, liquids and stuff. Um, what do I, I mean? I'm just a kid. What do I know? But that morning, my mom said, we need to take him in. This is, this is not good. I was telling her like all night, I didn't sleep much. He didn't sleep at all. And so we ended up calling a friend who came down and helped us get him into the car. He was so weak, so weak. He actually passed out in our kitchen, um, and we ended up, all of us, trying to pick him up and get him. I'm not sure why we didn't call the ambulance. It's just we didn't think about it, and it's not that far. By the time the ambulance would come and go, it would have been faster for us just to do it ourselves. So we had, um, John helped us. We got him in the car. We took off. When we got there, um, it, it was just happened so fast. We got there. They said, okay, there's something seriously wrong. Like I'm outside. I'm still a kid. My mom and I think John were there. We're kind of the side. We had another friend come to the hospital and kind of be with Jerry and I, um, cause we really didn't know what was going on. Um, but I did hear, um, I guess I was old enough, 17, 16, I was turning 18. So, I mean, I did hear them say that it sounded like leukemia. Now I heard of leukemia before I had not, I had no idea what leukemia was, no idea, but I've heard of people having it and being okay. So, um, actually it wasn't, they said something is about his blood cells there in Sherbrooke, but then they took him to ambulance. Um, we actually went, they, he went in the ambulance by himself. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure they would have gave us the option. I don't know why. Mom, she had us two kids, so we went ourselves. She took us, drove us. We pretty much followed behind um, the ambulance and went. Um, and when we got there, that's when they had us um, in a waiting room kind of area. Just our family was there. Pastor and Mrs. Bray was there with us. So they actually came to Anakinish with us. So they were there. And Um, they told us there that he had leukemia. It's almost like it happened just yesterday. Um, and I remember screaming, crying, and Mrs. Bray holding me. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So he was... Um, we went out to see him after that, and he had a mask over his face, a breathing oxygen, and he said to mom, so um, they told me that I have leukemia. Mom said, it's going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We all gave him a kiss and a hug, and he went in the ambulance. They were taking him to um, the city hospital in Halifax, and dad said, just you guys go home. They're just going to be doing tests. So just come up first thing in the morning and um, cause get clothes and get everything packed up and then come back in the morning and we'll, we'll go from there. But he said he might as well just go home for now because when I get in there, that's all they're going to be doing. You're probably not going to see me anyway. So that's what we did. So Saturday night, we, um, we went back to the house Dad went in the ambulance and um, 
we had people coming over. They were giving us supper and just letting us know that they were praying for him. Um, we had a lot of visitors. Um, and then we decided... Um, we went, we went to bed. It was late by the time we got back and, and everyone came through, it was really late. So we decided that we're going to sleep with mom in her bed, the three of us. And we were praying, um, mom prayed. And then actually all of us were praying. We're just talking about it. You know, we're like, you know, God's got this, you know, um, I've heard of people have leukemia. He's going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Um, and then it was, 11 ish, 11 ish at night. Um, we had a knock on the door. I'm like, who is that? Like it was later, like we were already in bed. Like we weren't sleeping or anything. We were up and talking, but we went to the door and it was pastor, Mrs. Bray. And they said, we got to go right now. Um, Allie, um, pastor Bray said, Allie went into a coma. We've got to get there and get you guys there right away. So, um, we went with pastor, Mrs. Bray, um, and I remember he stopped the police station because he said he was going to be speeding. <laughs> so <laughs> he went and got permission or I don't know. He talked to them. We talked to someone anyway, and we took off. It was the longest trip of my life because I had no idea what was going to happen. I didn't know if dad was already going to be gone or what was going on. We had all we knew is he went in a coma and my aunt Lynn and I think some of his brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles were all there already when I got there. And I remember walking up, um, and open the elevator and I just. Was at that moment you realized that this was more serious than what you'd expected, right? I plopped to the floor and I was crying and they told us that he was in surgery, um, that he had blood on his brain or something. And basically the more we talked and stuff with people, they were trying to get the pressure off his brain. But even the doctor came in later and talked to us, the family, and said that even if he did wake up, he would not be with us. Vegetable or whatever you could. I think that's what he said. I remember that, that he would not be with us anymore. So they were asking, you know, permission to take him off the, um, machine is during this obviously darkest moment of your life you were very close to your dad uh, you did everything with your dad you very would close. hunt fish uh, we would joke i i grew up in michigan but i never hunted barely did any fishing julie did a lot more of the outdoorsy things than i ever did um and you were really connected with your dad. And so this was obviously for those of you who are close, you know, to, to your father, or your mother, losing a loved one is an experience that unless you've gone through it, you can't really empathize or understand the deep hurt and the loss of losing somebody like a father or mother uh, in, in this way. It was so sudden and unexpected. And so obviously there's so many emotions going on. And yet through it all, you turn to the Lord through it. So many people in situations like this allow it to um, really cause them to become bitter toward the things of the Lord. Um, from everything I've heard about your dad, 
<clears throat> from everybody, from his siblings, from uh, people in the community. He was the nicest, most gentle, kindest, and funny human being that ever existed. You know, he was uh, just this great human being. And I, I never had the privilege of meeting him, but so, so many good things I've always ever heard of him. And so the question obviously could come into your mind of all people, why him? And why is this happening to me? And yet through it all, your entire family's still in ministry. How, how did you get through this? What, what did you turn to, to, endure this loss and this tragedy in your life? And have you seen God use this to develop you into a much more deeply spiritual person in the sense of trusting him more? What, where did you turn to to find comfort and strength through this? I turned to God. And I think you learn all about the Bible all your life. And when you go through something like this, all of that stuff that you learned is now, you have to apply it to your own life. And I learned to depend on him through this. I, he had given me a peace and an insurance that I can't even explain. I just knew that he was in control and that every day I could see him comfort and guide our life and give us the strength that we needed. Um, and I praise him for it. I know that without him, I don't know how I could have got through. And I remember, um, like the funeral, like so many people are around you like with so many people around us and, um, that comfort and it's, it's, it's great. And it's amazing. And you need that, but it's when everybody leaves. When you're back to normal, right? You're, everybody goes home and uh, there's no more words of comfort and, you know, people, people have to move on with their life, right? You move on with, everybody moves on with their life and yet you're stuck with this loss and this incredible hole in your life that unless it's filled with the grace of God, it's just, it can cause all kinds of devastation. Uh, and that's when I saw God real. The most in my life was during those times when I had to depend on him, when I had no one else. He was always there. There's a story of a missionary, and I'm not going to make you suffer through this. I break continuing uh, talking about this, but I, I did want you to share that because there are people out there that are maybe listening to this podcast that have uh, gone through that that deep of a loss, that tragic of a loss, and it can it can cause us to stray from the Lord, to become bitter at the Lord for allowing these things to happen. Uh, we don't always understand why. Can you explain why God allowed it to happen? No. no you, can, you can't explain why, but you can see that God was there in it. You can see the grace of God 
and how it became real. And there's a story of a missionary I heard, uh, Daryl Champlin would always tell this story. And I, I believe the story was about his wife's uh, mom, mother and father who were missionaries in Africa. And they moved to this remote tribe in Africa, were ministering and just, they were having such a hard time breaking through and, and building inroads with this village. Uh, they were learning the language, sharing the gospel, but they just, they were so resistant in this village. <clears throat> Nobody was coming to Christ. And I can't remember all the details, but after a few years of, of ministering in this village, his wife became ill and tragically passed away, leaving several children behind, uh, five, six, or seven kids, I think he had. And he continued. He stuck it out. He buried her there in that village, outside the village, under a, a tree, and just continued to minister and serve and share the gospel. And it was, as the story goes, maybe a month, two, three months after they buried his wife. And many of the village came out to observe, you know, his grief saw the children each give testimony and it was just their family. They sang, you know, during the funeral, it was just him and his kids. And, but the village observed it. They saw, the village really saw the grace of God through that and how he endured. And they saw his spirit even after losing his wife and that nothing really changed, that he continued in his faithfulness to the Lord. And little by little, People came to him and were getting saved one after another until almost half the village had come to him to become Christian, to put their faith in Christ. And he asked one of the leaders one day, you know, I spent all these years here and nobody responded. And then shortly after my wife dies, everybody's coming out. Many people are getting saved. What is it that is causing, what made the change? Is it because I lost my wife? And they said, that's exactly what it is. You see, when you were here, we understood your gospel message. We understood what you were teaching. And we knew that this was a good message and it was a good message to live by. But we had our own way of living and we were fine with that. But then we saw that your message sustained you through death and that this message is a message you can die with. It's not just a message to live by but it's a message you can die by. And we saw the peace, we saw the hope that you had and you continue to preach that. And that's what's convinced us that we must follow your Jesus. And that's what it is at the bottom line. Whatever tragedy, whatever difficulty you go through, you turn to the Lord and he will sustain you. And that's when really you're gonna prove whether your faith is real because God will prove himself real in every dif difficulty, in every and situation. Absolutely. And I believe he did with all of us in our family. I believe that he used this situation, not a good one. I mean, not a, it was a very difficult situation, but he used it in all of our lives. I mean, I can't speak for my other siblings, but I guarantee that it has influenced or um, definitely had an impact sure. on their life. Sure. Well, Julie, I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, we're going to end the podcast. Sorry for all the kind. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's obviously an extremely emotional event that no matter how many times you recall it, it's a difficult uh, thing to... And every time I do, and I say, <laughs> I'm not going to cry. I'm going to keep my posture and I'm going to 
say it and I always end up crying. Well, listener, if this, uh, if her testimony has been a blessing to you, if you know somebody who's suffered tragic loss and maybe struggling, uh, share this story with them. Tell them to take a listen and uh, think about missions. The thing about being a missionary is God calls just regular, ordinary people who've experienced difficulties, good things and bad things in life. Uh, he just takes regular, ordinary people and he shapes them to fulfill his calling. And God has a plan and a call for your life he wants you to fulfill. No matter what your experience is, God wants to glorify himself through you. And if you allow and turn to the Lord and allow him, he can work in marvelous ways, no matter how difficult a trial he may allow to come into your life. And so I hope this uh, testimony has been encouragement to you. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode, either next week or the week after, whenever we post it, where we're going to share about how we met uh, about how Julie had vowed when you were a teenager. What, <laughs> were the, what were the two things you vowed? I would never marry American and I would never live in America. <laughs> <laughs> and two things she did. Now now she not only lives in America, but now we, we base out of America. We live in Senegal. So part of that was fulfilled, but we're going we're gonna to look at how God put us together and share a little bit about that in the future. And so be sure to share this podcast with somebody you think it might be a blessing to you and uh, send us some feedback. Let Julie know you were encouraged and how her testimony has been a blessing to you and impacted you. And so this is Josh Mead from Senegal. And Julie. From Senegal. And here we are, a Canadian and American serving the Lord in Africa. And so thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. God bless. Have a great week.